Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. You are now listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the OG bad boys of Bigfoot, the Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive of Squatchology, the Chip and Dale of Bigfoot, and I'm not talking about the cartoon. Please welcome your hosts, the Bigfoot celebrity couple, Biff Clubo, better known as Cliff Berrickman and James Bobo Fay. Hello, Cliff. Hello, Bobo. How you doing today? All right. How's all that TV stuff you're doing going? Oh, well, I'm in between right now. I've got to film something in the next couple of days for a special that's coming out next year at some point. Can't really talk too much about it, but it's really cool. I'll tell you that. I've done a lot of these one-off gigs this past year, you know, where they show you clips and you talk about it or whatever for a couple of different networks. But this this one, this one is really cool. And I'm not a big fan of, you know, crypto TV in general. Um, but I, I, I got to see a, a preview of this thing and I'll tell you, I think everybody, if you're into Bigfoot is going to love this one. And I, and I don't get anything for, you know, hyping it up and stuff. I'm just telling you the truth. This is cool. It, it's going to, it's going to flip your lid. Dang, I'm jealous, man. That's awesome. Yeah, it, it's pretty neat. I don't know when it's going to air or anything like that, but I know I'm recording it this week. If everything goes right, you know, because the scheduling and production and all that other stuff, something is always up, but it's going to be really neat. I was very impressed with what these guys pulled together. So, right on. Well, guess what? Today, Cliff, we're going to clear up some inquiring minds. Oh, yeah, I understand that this is uh, one, of, one of my favorite kinds of episodes, the, the Q&As, where we take um, questions from our listeners, the Squatchketeers, and then we can uh, address them and, you know, and kind of riff on them. I know I enjoy it. It seems that you enjoy it. And, I, and based on the feedback we get on social media and on email, it seems like our listeners really like it. So we're going to continue doing this. Cool. Yeah, let's knock them out. Let's get going on them. Well, you know, I, I want to start with one question, actually, before we get to the first uh, user-submitted question. Um, Bobo, I've been hearing rumors that you are dead. Is this indeed true? It was. It was true? But three days later, you rose? Yep, for three days, I was dead. As an internet. I even made a couple of celebrity gossip sites. Nice, nice. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but you're not, you're not dead any longer, if I understand this correctly. So um, everybody can rest easy. I might look it and sound like it here and there, but I'm not. <laughs> One person wrote in to say, um, tell me that my Bobo isn't dead. <laughs> so who is, who is this person that owns you? Like my Bobo, as, as opposed to like, say, my wife's Bobo or my Bobo, Cliff's Bobo, or, you know, it's so funny that everybody has their own Bobo. <laughs> I have several owners, masters, if you will. Yeah. My Bobo. Our Bobo. I'd like to. I'd like to. I'd like to think of you as our Bobo, though. I think that's funnier. That's generous of you, Cliff. Yeah, and sometimes it's their Bobo. <laughs> that's not my Bobo. <laughs> well, we got a question. Well, first, it's a statement that goes into a question, but it's uh, Carolyn Whitaker wants to know. Well, she says at first, a little flatter here. You guys are great. Thanks for your interesting and entertaining podcast. I'm glad she noticed. What is a group of Bigfoot called? 
i.e. a dazzle of zebra, a murder of crows, etc. Hmm. Good question. I know Kit Morrill says it's Sasky. Well, he, so he thinks that's a plural of the word Bigfoot, but I think she's asking about the collective noun, like a gaggle of geese, a murder of crows, as she said, uh, um, a troop of gorillas. A mosh pit of Bigfoots? Perhaps mosh pit. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, my guess would be, I mean, maybe, I don't know. I mean, they're, they're not often seen in groups, so that, that question doesn't come up, and it's not really, we don't need to answer that in some ways. But I mean, since she's asking, I guess we should come up with something. It might be a troop. It might be a tribe. It might be a family group. Yeah, that's what we usually say. We usually assume it's a family group or a group of uh, teenagers. We call, I guess I, I usually refer to them as a pack, I guess. A pack? Yeah, I mean, I guess that could be it. When it's the um, teenage ones grouped up. You know, and because again, if we refer to them as a family group, then we're really talking about the social structure, which is more in the realm of primatology. That you know, that you know, a troop and and social. I'm sorry, a troop or family group or tribe or any of the any of these groupings talk really talk about a more behavioral aspect as opposed to a collective noun, um, like which is what uh, Carolyn seems to be asking about, like an ostentation of peacocks. Um, that's what a group of peacocks is called. I, I mean, for right now, I guess we just say a group. Um, unless we, we want to coin a term today, um, we could just say, oh, that's a bobo of Bigfoots or a gimlin of Sasquatches, maybe something like that, perhaps. We should call Moneymaker and find out. No, oh, yeah, Matt would know, or Matt would certainly tell us something that he would say in such a confident manner we would believe him. <laughs> exactly, he, he, he wouldn't have to think too long. He'd, probably, he'd get a quizzical look on his face for about five seconds, and then make a definitive statement. <laughs> a moneymaker of Bigfoots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe I think that's it. It must be a moneymaker of Bigfoots. I like that. That's not going to stick. No, it's probably not going to stick. Let, how, how, how the listeners should let us know what they think. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, maybe uh, write in and tell us what you think. Um, and of course, if you do want to write to us, just go to bigfootandbeyondpodcast.com and uh, hit the contact button. That's probably the easiest way if you want to send a message to any of us or have suggestions for the podcast, or if you want to ask us questions for a future Q&A episode, because we're going to be doing these about once a month or so. And uh, it, it, I, we really enjoy these and I hope you guys do too. Now that we clarified that and cleared that up, we can go to the next one. Oh, yeah. I think it's crystal clear now. I hope you like your answer, Carolyn. Yeah. <laughs> I think we just removed all doubts on which way to move forward. <laughs> okay. This next question is from Paul Sorensen. What type of information would you expect to see on a page from a field journal? The times are out, the moon phase, weather, temperature, wind direction. Real basic location. Yeah. What, if you're doing anything to attract them, I guess. What else, Cliff? Uh, I think time, the time that you're out there, the, the, the time spent out there as well. Like maybe what time you arrive and what time you uh, leave the area would, might be useful. I think uh, what plants and animals you see and also what plants and animals you didn't see that perhaps you expected to. Um, any sounds um, like crows were, you know, chirping at something or squawking at something today. Never found out what it was. Or, yeah, I, I hiked the, you know, the the whatever twelve n ten road and um, to the bottom and back up. I found bear scat in the middle of the of the of the road. It seemed to be about four days old. Um, you know, stuff like that. Just more or less observations and 
you know, when you're when you're doing field journaling, a really effective way to do it is to write just like you're talking to yourself. I mean, all of us have this internal dialogue going. Um, uh, very few of us can control that because that takes a great amount of discipline and, and conscious effort. But um, if you have, we have this internal dialogue going on all, all the time, just sit down and see what comes out. Uh, and, and focus on observations and also drawing things. Um, I don't care how good of an artist you consider yourself, but if you draw pictures of things that you find are interesting, I think that's really cool. And um, it, it, it's kind of following in the vein of the um, you know 17th, 18th, and 19th century naturalists. Naturalists are what essentially scientists were before science was a thing. You know, science is a relatively new thing. It was scientists kind of developed out of the naturalist school in the mid 1800s, if I understand things correctly, um, where there was a little bit more rigorous testing and, and data and all that sort of stuff. Whereas before it was about naturalists um, going out and observing nature and participating in it. And that's, that's essentially what we are, you know, as amateur scientists, we're naturalists. So go and uh, record everything you can and make it for you. Other people might read it, of course. So you want to be diligent and, and thorough in your descriptions and uh, data gathering and whatnot. Um, but at the, at the end of the day, someone might never read it. You know, you might die and it ends up in your kids' hands and they don't know what to do with it or whatever. Um, but you know, so make it for you. Make it personalize what makes sense to you and, and the kinds of questions you're trying to answer. Um, and I, I think that's a good start. And from there, you just you're just going to get better and better at it. Um, for for my own field journal, um, it's mostly dates, times, locations, what we saw. Maybe if we hear something, what direction it came from, the description of what we heard, um, footprints and whatnot are usually documented phot photographically. Um, and if you do find something, you take extensive notes on it, take measurements with your, uh, with your scale item that you bring out to the field every time and photograph everything, film it if you can, that kind of stuff. Because nowadays it doesn't have to be a field journal, even though that is probably the most important piece of equipment you can bring out there because there's other ways to document in your quote unquote journal and it could be digitally. So, um, keep that in mind as well. Good answer. Thanks. I'm sure you would agree with most of what I said. I certainly would. Oh, no, not otherwise Bobo so handsome question. Those are getting old. Well, let's go to the next one then. Brandon Hall. Hey, guys. I just saw the podcast from July where you guys rewatched the best evidence yet. I'm indeed doing well, and sadly, no, I was never able to beat my brother up. Laugh out loud. But we are on good terms now. I was absolutely stoked to see you guys reviewing that episode. Remember, Brandon, that young guy? Were you there, or was it just me that went to his house? I think it was just you, wasn't it? I think so. Yeah, he was a really cool kid. I think he was 12 years old at the time, and he had like a 17-year-old brother that was torturing him and beating the crap out of him all the time and just made his life hell, and he was miserable. And he wrote to me a while back, and I said, hey, did you ever kick his ass? You know, I was like, I hope you got him when he got older. He said, no, nah, he's cool to me now. But um, that, was a, that was a great spot. They were on these, their, their place was right on this power line cut. Like They lived under like right side by side with the power lines, and there was a huge, it was the biggest one in South Florida. They were right, right, right by the river. It was a great spot, and they, he definitely had some encounters there. He had a pretty scary run-in, actually. But he didn't He didn't beat his brother up. Okay. Well, that's good. We don't want to advocate violence. In fact, we want to advocate the opposite. So I told him if it's, if it's possible, just do it for good measure, then call it even. Yeah, okay. Good point. Good point. Still not sure I agree with that, but all right. Well, good, good. I'm, sounds like Brandon's getting along with his brother then. Yeah, that's good. Next question is from Cat Moody. Love your work. 
I'm interested to know about the frequency and impact hoaxes have on the hunt for Bigfoot. Most videos are hoaxes. It's had a big impact. Uh, the Georgia body hoax. Um, every time like there's some big scientists getting involved, it seems like one of these big hoax breaks and it kind of deters them. Um, it, yeah, it makes people not take it serious. You know, it ends up, it just makes us all look super bad. Yeah, it has, it definitely has an impact. It's, it's a, it really pisses me off. <laughs> well, it's a personal impact. And um, that certainly, you know, disappoints us or pisses us off, depending on what your demeanor might be. But uh, at the same time, publicly, um, what it does, in, in one way, it drives a lot of interest because people are, are, are all abuzz about something because most of the public never hears about things being fake. Um, the research community generally does. Um, but the, the public in general, they hear that, oh, somebody's got a body in the freezer or something like that. Or, um, and then that's all they hear about it. They don't realize that, oh, yeah, that's been debunked or whatever. Um, but the it, it, it makes the subject look silly, unfortunately, because, um, oh, that's a hoax. Oh, that's a hoax. And people, all they hear about are hoaxes if they're hearing about – if they do eventually hear about these things being debunked. Um, and – makes people think, oh, well, it's all hoax then. They don't realize how much good stuff is obtained and recorded. They just hear about the hoaxes or, oh, the Georgia thing was a hoax or, you know, it just ma it just makes this all look silly. Like we're chasing things that are always turn out to be hoaxes. Um, but as far as the frequency of hoaxes, I find that the vast majority of things that are not Bigfoots are actually just innocent misidentifications and not deliberate hoaxes, although they certainly exist as well. I'd say the video, I'd say when it comes to the videos, that's where you get the intentional hoaxes. Yeah, uh, that, that's absolutely true. Um, and you know, here's my general rule. Is it on YouTube or TV? That's probably not true. That's what basically what it comes down to. And of course, yeah, there are true things on TV. And of course, there are true things on YouTube. But the vast majority of it is, is they're not true. They're either misidentifications or hoaxes, deliberate hoaxes. Um, Time and time again, that is bearing out to be true. So, um, I mean, I hate to hate to burst everybody's bubble, but it seems that that's part of my role in the community here. Is that uh, yeah? If you see it on YouTube, just assume it's not real until you have a reason to think it is. Yeah, I get bombarded with people sending me video clips. It's like been proven a hoax five years ago, then it goes back around fresh. We're like ten year old clips that were proven to be hoaxes back then, but people are kind of new to the subject. They they get all excited about it. I'm like. Now that's so that's been known hoax for a long time. Yeah, yeah, with Finding Bigfoot and all the other shows and stuff, there's there's just a new influx of Bigfooters in on in the community nowadays. And a lot of them don't have the um the background or the depth in the field or the foundation that they need to know that, you know, certain names, okay, oh that name's involved with it. Don't even look at it. Oh, that person's involved in that. Don't you don't have to worry about that. That's almost certainly a hoax. Um, oh, that thing again. We saw that eight years ago. They just don't have the foundation and the and the depth of uh, uh, in the background in their background of bigfooting, so they don't realize it. Um, it's really unfortunate. And of course, things like that do do damage. Um, and they, of course, get a lot of people all fired up and uh, to get their hopes up just to be crushed later. Um, you know, I always picture that's kind of my job to crush the spirits of the Bigfoot community. <laughs> All right, what do we got here next? Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Sonidos of our music. Sonidos of our voices. 
Sonidos of Our Stories. Listen to the sounds and voices of Latin music and culture with Pandora stations like RMX, La Vida en Pop, El Pulso, and Satellites, and podcasts like Ruby Rosa and more. From music to stories, all that we are is in the sonidos of our culture. Listen now on Pandora. Question, but from Stacy S. Who's the person who plays Bigfoot in the Keith Hoffman segments about evidence? Couldn't they have made Bigfoot's face a little more handsome? Thanks, and I enjoy your show. I know who that was. It was Micah Thompson, a lot of them. Oh, no, 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 no. Because you're thinking about the, um, no, no, with Keith Hoffman in it? No, no. Oh, that one at the studio. Yeah, in the studio, I, I don't know who does that. Some Animal Planet person. But you're thinking about, um, you know, those uh, recreations where the Bigfoot or like the, the witness is describing the Bigfoot activity, the Bigfoot's activity that it, he, he or she observed. And they have some dude in a suit. Um, you know, knocking on trees or walking across the road and all that sort of thing for for the finding Bigfoot thing. Yeah, that that was one of the producers or Micah. It was Micah and and then uh, Baelish did some of them. Yeah, that's right. Baelish. He was in. A, they just re, they just keep reusing that and regurgitating the same footage, of course. But the stuff with Keith Hoffman, I'm not sure who's in that actually. That's a nobody. <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> No, it's probably it's one of the exec, one of the exec, someone in the office, obviously one of the exec. I was wondering if it was um, Rick Holzman because he was a big dude. He was the vice president there. I was I always wondering if it was him because it's about his size. Yeah, I don't really know. I don't really know who was who that was. Good question. Yeah, because all that stuff was filmed in New York, uh, New York, like in Manhattan somewhere in the offices. So not where we were. We have no idea. All right. So this next one is from uh, Jay Hinote or Hinote Hinote maybe. Question, what is your guys' take on the Freeman footage? I think it's real for the most part. I mean, I can't prove it, but I, th- I think it is. Yeah, I think it, I think it's real too. And um, I used to have problems with the way it, it walked or whatever because it was looking down. But then I've heard a lot of reports about people observing Sasquatches kind of slowly walking and looking down. Um, even when the Sasquatch wasn't, it wasn't aware it was being observed. So I don't have a problem with that. Um, it doesn't move quick and all stealthy, like, you know, like the Patterson Gimlin film subject kind of does. Um, but you know, what makes me, well, there's a couple things that make me strongly lean towards it being real. Um, number one, the footprints that Paul was following at the time are of a known individual. And I have a cast of the footprints that were found at Deduct Springs on that day, uh, August 20th, 1992. Uh, not 1994, by the way, it was 1992. Um, that's a, a mis. A lot of people think it's 94 because uh, Legend Meets Science says it was 94, but it wasn't. It was actually 1992, August 20th. And I remember that, of course, because October 20th is the Patterson site, uh, the Patterson film thing. But anyway, um, I have got a copy of that footprint, and it is a known individual from the data set whose footprints were found on numerous occasions, including the in January 1991, when um, uh, that seven-mile trackway. Now, it wasn't seven, mile lo- seven miles long. It was on Seven Mile Road. There's a difference. Um, but a whole lot of footprints came out of that, and it's the same individual. Um, in fact, that footprint, that, that individual's footprints were found on a number of occasions in the area. So the footprints are real. To me, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, um, therefore the film is as well. And on top of that, I recently, like about a month or two ago, I had a nice conversation with Michael Freeman, Paul's son. That day, Michael was hanging out at home with his friends in the living room when Paul came home. 
from uh, getting the footage. And he says, when my dad, and this is Michael speaking about his father, Paul Freeman, he said, when my dad came in the door, I knew something was up. He was pale. He was scared. Um, and he, you know, mind you, it's like an hour drive or an hour and a half drive from D-Duck Springs down to Walla Walla. Um, he goes, there was something up. Just looking at my dad, I knew something happened. And then once he heard the whole story, the way his dad told the story, he said, I've never seen my dad that scared about anything. It's 100% real. He told me the same thing. Yeah, this is Michael knowing his father. So, you know, I, I, I believe Michael. I mean, I, I think it's real. And I think Paul, Paul, I think Paul Freeman gets a bad rap. Oh, definitely does. Definitely does. And a lot of it came from uh, the Good Morning America segment where um, they interviewed Paul and in like West Summerlin, they made West Summerlin look kooky, you know, um, and and, uh, and they interviewed Paul and they asked him like if he had ever made fake prints and his answer was yes. And that that's all they gave. You know, they didn't say, oh, yeah, I've, I've done experiments with fake tracks in my garden. They didn't let that out on in the edit. They just said, yeah, he, he faked prints. Well, guess what? I mean, uh, I have made fake prints as well, but that doesn't mean that I'm a hoaxer. It means that I was doing experiments and trying to learn from those experiments. What can I learn by making my own fake tracks in places where nobody's ever going to find them? And I can I cast them. I have a number of tracks that I know they're fake because I made them because I was looking for commonalities in the fake prints so I can learn to discern real ones better. That's what Paul was doing. Um, and Paul is labeled a hoaxer. Um, because of that. And now, now, certainly there are fake prints in the Blue Mountain evidence. But at the same time, there's fake prints in my data set as well, because like any good Bigfoot researcher should do, if you go to a spot and you find prints, real or not, you should cast them. You absolutely should cast them, even if you don't think they're real. And it is foolish not to, because um, well, there's lots of reasons, but the number one reason is those fake prints might show up again. And if you can compare um, the prints to another set and realize that, oh, wait, I thought these might be real at first, but look, these are the same as these fake ones that I cast, you know, back over wherever. Well, then you're on to something. And then you're, you're, you're looking into how far this particular hoaxer mm -hmm. ranges. And I think that's interesting. Um, so yeah, Paul made experiments with fake prints in his garden. Okay, that does not make him a hoaxer. Yes, there are fake prints in the Blue Mountain evidence. But so what? He's just doing his due diligence as a Bigfoot researcher. I feel so strongly about that, that I would say if you go to a spot and you find fake prints and don't cast them, that you are failing as a researcher. You should be collecting every bit of evidence possible, including the fake stuff because all of that has value. True that. Okay, the next one. Chelsea Matthews. Listening to different encounters, it seems many people have PTSD over their experience with Sasquatch. Cliff, are you worried about having a face-to-face -face encounter could change your willingness to get out there and research Sasquatch? Oh, have, you ever, have your encounters affected you in a negative way at all, even if you are able to suppress it? Thanks, guys. Love your show. Well, am I worried about having a face-to-face? -face? No, no. And I, I can say that because I'm in the museum right now and it's nice and safe. But I'll tell you, at, at you know, 2 o'clock in the morning when it's dark and I'm camping alone and I'm, you know, 150 yards from the fire, I, I there's sometimes for there's sometimes that I go, oh, man, what am I doing? Um, am I worried about it? No. 
Not not really. Um, I'm willing to take that chance. I've failed a couple times in my life um, when I had an opportunity to get close, uh, maybe even snap a picture of a Sasquatch. Uh, one time in particular, I kind of blew that. Um, and so ever since then, I've kind of said, you know what? It doesn't matter now at this point. We're all going to die. How do you want to die? You want to go in the hospital with a bunch of tubes coming out of every orifice you have? Or do you want to be wrapped around a tree by a Sasquatch? Well, I choose the latter. And if there's a chance to get close to one of these things, I'm going to do everything I can. And I, I say that now from, you know, upstairs in the office at the museum, um, where it's nice and safe and there's no chance of this happening. But I think that I'm going to try to do everything I can to get as close to one of these things as possible. Um, and, you know, if, if I find that I find myself 10 feet away from a Sasquatch and it scares the crap out of me, I pee myself, I vomit a few times and then I pass out from fear, um, Maybe that'll change my mind in the future, but I'm willing to take that chance at this point. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually do worry about it a little bit because people say when you see that face like real close and it bears, you know, the, I mean, the eyes boring you like just they want to kill you. And, you know, you see those teeth, you know, it starts snarling at you in that deep growl. I can see that definitely screwing with you. And, and I, I understand why people are pretty flipped out and have the PTSD. And I actually did get PTSD for a while from that first encounter I had. That was the one that, freaked me out really hard like i was i was shaking in my boots for like i went heavily armed for a while after that for a couple of years i always had a firearm with me when i used to never usually carry one with me before that but i don't think it matters if you have a gun or not for the most part if they want to get you they're going to get you but they don't want to so i don't i don't really worry about it too much you're not going to let it change your behavior or stop you from going out no no but i do i do wonder about man if i if i had one of those ones where you bump into like an eight or nine footer like on the trail and it's between you and where you're going. And you just see that, just that the ones that look evil, not the ones that have the peaceful eyes, the ones that have the, where people say it's definitely demonic. It was demonic. That could be pretty unsettling, but I'll take it. Yeah. You know, um, uh, you know, I live in the woods in a very squatchy spot. I think they pop by or cruise by every once in a while, you know? Um, uh, yeah, I think, but then again, I really do think that almost anybody who lives near sighting reports adjacent to, you know, national forest land or BLM land has them around. They just probably don't notice it. Um, but I do, I, I, you know, when I, when I get up in the middle of the night to go take a leak or something like that, and I, and we, we sleep with our windows open and everything, not, not, well, the, the, the drapes open, you know, it's too cold to sleep with the windows open. And I'm looking outside. I'm thinking one of these days I'm going to be I'm going to see some sort of silhouette right there, and it's going to that's going to change a lot of things for me. Or I actually a lot of I think about my wife too, Melissa, because sometimes I have to work out of town for a weekend, and she's home alone with you know, and she of course draws the drapes because she's very aware that Sasquatches sometimes look in windows, um, and she does not want to see one. Like she has already set that put that line in the sand. She does not want to see one looking in the window. Whereas I look out the window every chance I get just in case there's one peeking in. That would scare the willies out of me. I'm with you, but I understand her point completely. Yeah, you don't want to. The one thing I do, the thing I worry about the most that I've had it happen to me a couple of times is when they scream point blank in the dark. I worry about a heart attack. But honestly, sometimes I wonder about, God, like would my heart hold up to one of those again? Because I mean, it's just so loud and so just blast your whole body. It's so startling. That's the one thing I worry about is with my heart. Can my heart take another one of those close encounter screams? <laughs> but you're willing to roll the dice and um, see if it can handle it, right? Oh, yeah, totally. Okay. It looks like our next question is from Paul Nauman. Newman now is N-A-U, Nauman, I'm guessing. But there's also two N's at the end, so maybe it's Nauman. I had read a correlation with water and Bigfoot. 
and wonder why there were past accounts of Bigfoot in the coast ranges of the Los Padres National Forest, but no current accounts recorded. Do you think this is because of fires and the modern droughts in these areas? Wait, Los Padres? That's Big Sur. Yeah, that's Big Sur, right? Yeah, there's a report from two years ago I, I got from, I know, I know people that live down throughout that zone. Um, there is stuff coming in from there still. Yeah, there is. Yeah, there, there, there's, there's a couple families. It's a huge area. There's not a lot of access. The property holdings in there are gigantic. They're huge. The, the private in holdings, some of those ranches, and then you got Fort Hunter Liggett on the backside. Um, they're in there, but I don't think there's as many as you'd expect for how much food resources there are. No, you know, I know. I think water is uh, one of the concerns, and I know it's a focus of the question here. So, I think if you are in, in that particular area, you got to find out where the water is all year round. the The deepest pools you can find, I think, are probably a good direction to go because that's the kind of water that's going to hold hold out there. All the animals are going to go there. There's several reservoirs. Oh yeah, several reservoirs, and you. And of course, we, they would also probably want the moving water too. I think, uh, but they'll take what they can get. One guy came in the shop here in the museum, uh, maybe in July or June or something, and he was saying that he works the southern end of the um, Los Padres National Forest. You know, the, the, uh, what, what is, that? Is, that, is that? is that down by San Luis Obispo, I think? San Simeon? Yeah, like the, he's like on that side of the mountains, the southern um, part of that range. And he says that there's a couple spots in there that he goes frequently and they're usually there, or there's some indication that they're usually there. Maybe he's misinterpreting things, but maybe he's right too. I, I don't know. I've never, I've never worked that area on that side at all. But um, he says this is one of the only spots around that has water all year round. And he's kind of, what he says makes a lot of sense. He might have it going on. Um, but just because you don't hear about stuff doesn't mean that, that stuff isn't happening. I would like to point that out, that perhaps uh, that, that's some, a differentiator for Paul, is that just because there's nothing on the BFRO site or any of the other public sites that you have access to doesn't mean that there's nothing going on. And I'll just use, again, the museum as another example. I don't know how many um, reports there are for Clackamas County on the BFRO site, but I, I personally have collected something like 150 from the area. And I know the BFRO doesn't have anything close to that. So by being in the area and having some sort of an antenna out, whether you put flyers out or you make a website specifically for a region or whatever it is, whatever you happen to do, if you can put your ear to the ground in a particular area, you will get far more reports than any online place could or, um, uh, um, or, or book might offer, like the John Green books, for example. Um, by by being active in the community and letting people know that you're you're flying your freak flag of Bigfoot, and if anybody hears something, they need to talk to you. You will get a lot of stuff. So just because you're not currently hearing about it doesn't mean that nothing is happening. It just means that perhaps you can do something to uh, increase the inflow of information. Yeah, I've inquired down there quite a bit, actually, down through there that part of the uh, Los Padres. You know, talking to people and. It's not on their radar. I think it's one of those places where the stuff happens and people just assume there's no Bigfoot. So it's funny because Sierra Nevada's north of San Francisco, people like big, Bigfoot's, are, you know, a thought like, could that be a Bigfoot? But down there, like just people think it's not possible. Yeah, it's like the San Diego Mountains, same sort of thing down there, right? The Angel, Angel, Angel's Crest and stuff. And yeah, can't be a Bigfoot. They don't live here. This is Pacific Northwest thing. Yeah, I was talking to Bart. I'm like, Bart, we should quit coming up here and go squatch. We should go down by your place more because especially with the drought, there's there's only so many springs that have 
good flowing water during the, and you, you can go to the USGS and get those maps where the springs are. We, we're going to start hitting those more. Oh, you totally should, because that's kind of virgin territory. I mean, besides BART, I don't know if anybody's working it with any sort of uh, regularity. And BART really only touches on the north end of the mountains. Yeah, that's virgin territory, and there's tons of stuff. And again, if you want to work an area, and this goes, this doesn't, this doesn't just apply to the, um, to this particular area, Big Sur. It applies to wherever you live in the world. Um, look for sighting reports nearby you. And in Bigfoot, two or three sighting reports is a cluster. That's not much data, but for for our field, that's a cluster of reports. Look there. Um, previous sightings and encounters is probably the number one indicator of a Sasquatch uh, residing in your area. So any of these places, um, two or three, four reports, oh my gosh, that's out out of this world. Four reports from like a five mile area. That's outstanding. Go there, work it, see what you get, share your results with people who you trust. George Ito wants to know, who is the most famous or surprising person you've met that believes in Bigfoot that exists? Example, someone famous. Well, the people that I've met that are famous that uh, believed in Bigfoot, I think I knew they all believed in Bigfoot already. And then there's a lot of like celebs that wrote to me, you know, sent a message saying, hey, that's great. You know, I've always been into it, but I never met them. But there's a lot of like Megan Fox was pretty surprising. Yeah, yeah. That was that was kind of a surprise. Um uh, I mean, I, when I first learned that Dan Aykroyd was into weird subjects, I mean, he's really more of a UFO guy. He made a documentary and stuff, but I, he does like the Bigfoot thing. I, I heard he went to bat against Joe Rogan. Um, Joe was saying, oh, Bigfoots are nonsense or whatever. And of course, Joe Rogan, you're completely wrong. But um, but he was saying, no, no, there's this guy, Dr. Meldrum, and he was like touting Meldrum's work and everything. So uh, Dan Aykroyd apparently is pretty well read on the Sasquatch subject from what I understand. I think that's pretty cool and maybe not surprising because he is a weird guy into ufos and stuff but um i thought that was neat that he took the time to look into the bigfoot thing as well oh justin bieber <laughs> oh yeah yeah justin bieber he was wearing I, I got i found a picture somewhere of him wearing a gone squatching hat like yours bobo and um oh you know i put it on my my social media i couldn't believe the hate that picture got what they they hate that dude oh i thought they meant to hate the hat no, no, no. They hate Justin Bieber, you know, and I can, I can understand not liking music, but always, always this off topic, but I guess it always makes me curious about, um, the, the vitriol and the hatred and the strong emotions that come up, um, about music really like, okay, you don't like that guy. Cause it's music and you're, you, you hate him and call him these nasty names and these dirt brains sort of nastiness, you know, it's just, uh, it just, just, I was so disappointed. Crappy music brings that out of me. Yeah, yeah, well, no, it's not just you, Bob. It's, 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 it's all sorts of people. I just couldn't believe it, and um, so disappointed. You couldn't but. believe it? <laughs> well played, sir. Well played. You know who else, you know, you know who else used to rock the hat was uh, Dave Navarro from James Addiction, the guitar player, and then uh, what's his name? Uh, Fuzzy Zeller, the uh, golf pro golfer that won the PGA Championship. He'd wear the hat. No kidding. Well, it's a good-looking hat. You you wore it well, Bubs. You really you, you know you're you're a good model for that sort of thing. All right. Well, it looks like the next question here is uh, from Brian Levine or Levine. Hey, Cliff and Bobo, did you have any armed security with the team when conducting your investigations? Not only can some squatches be ornery, but downright deadly. Never for squatches, but we did for uh, bears in Canada, and then when we were in the Amazon, we had armed escorts because of uh, the coat trade and banditos and all that 
Well, I guess it's making Moneymaker look better and better for getting that leather jacket in order to deflect <laughs> knife points. Leather jacket with uh, <laughs> titanium plates. Yeah, that motorcycle jacket. It'll deflect knife points. It's like, man, where are you planning on going? Like, I'm, I'm going to the jungle, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should have swam in it so he could deflect uh, caiman teeth as well. <laughs> swimming around in the Amazon probably wasn't the, the smartest thing to do. But no, no, he survived, so maybe it was. I don't know. <laughs> All right, Bobes, you take it. But yeah, never for, never for Sasquatch were we armed, no. Charles Baker wants to know, what is the weirdest thing you came across squatching? Some weird, probably abandoned, some like kind of abandoned, weird, old stuff, like an old homestead, maybe something like that. You remember, well, you know, one of the things, remember when we were uh, trying to find the, the night investigation spot in Kentucky? And oh, you pulled into some driveway, some cake. And, and then that crooked witch came out of the trailer and pointed her jagged finger at us and screamed something like, get in the pot. Or I don't know what she yelled, but she yelled something at us. And like both her eyes were looking different directions and she was They were black. There was no white. There was no white to her eyes. It was all black. She was clearly some sort of hag. Yeah, I remember like um they had all those wrecked cars everywhere and like old tow trucks in there. And man, that was that was right by you know, someone probably knows who we're talking about because it was right next to Frozen Head State Park. Yeah, I mean, how many uh you know black-eyed hags could there be in the area, you know? I don't know. But yeah, she was a little frightening. It was like Texas Chainsaw Massacre style. I know there's more stuff, though. I know there, there, we've come across some really weird things. One of the first times we were in the Northeast, you know, because I'd never really been to the Northeast before we started Bigfooting out there. It might have been Rhode Island or, or somewhere out there. Um, I, was on, I was doing the camping segment, and it really kind of creeped me out because I thought I was way out in the middle of nowhere, you know, and then suddenly running across um, – the, the grown over half buried remains of a cemetery of some sort where, you know, there's like five or six broken tombstones that are grown over with these vines and everything. And like, what is this? Oh, it's a tombstone. Oh God, how many, we're not camping here. You know, how many, how many more are there that it, like we can't even see now? It's just all these unmarked graves out in the middle of the woods, you know, looking in haunted areas for monsters basically is what we're doing. Um, that, that was a little unsettling to me but uh we just didn't camp there <laughs> the weirdest thing i found from squatches is uh separated bone piles like jaw bones and femurs and ribs all in their own separate piles from elk yeah but that, not too much weird stuff i mean i know there's weird stuff i just can't think of, like nothing really super dramatic you know yeah yeah if I, if I can remember something i i will make a note in my phone um charles and then we can uh you can check it out, and I'll bring it up in a future episode. So keep listening. I'm sorry, sorry about my memory there, but uh, our memory really, because for once Bobo's memory is failing as well. But um, yeah, so we'll, we'll we'll revisit that, Charles. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Okay, this next question is from Tyler Hilgar. Love your show. Did you say that the London trackway turned out to be faked? That long trackway with all those tracks and the mud, the ones the guy found, he's walking his dog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, they actually turned out to be um, fake. So um, uh, at least in my opinion, you know, I don't know who did it. 
Um, but what, what happened is that uh, later that same year, um, some guys, some uh, well-known skeptics uh, tried to hoax, hoax me again. Um, they, they sent me an email um, about these footprints um, being up in LB, Washington. They also sent an email to the BFRO. So they're going after you know me and the BFRO and specifically targeting us um, for hoaxing, which is very rude, by the way. And um, of course, I follow up on everything, whether it's hoaxed or not. I went up there and other Bigfooters were up there before me and they're raving about these things and stuff. And I get up there and I'm thinking, I don't know, a lot of them look really good, but there's a couple that go, this does not look right to me, you know? Um, and, and basically, we eventually, with the help of Matt Pruitt and some other people, we eventually find out who hoaxed those and we out them and through the Bigfoot Times, et cetera. And the, we, don't, we don't have everybody involved, but we got one or two of the people. So anyway, um, now the London tracks and the, LB thing will play in a moment. The, the London tracks um, were, were very exciting, and I, I cast a whole lot of them, um, which is a great lesson because if I only cast one footprint, like most Bigfooters do, I'd still think they're real. But I cast a whole lot of them, and there were uh, they looked really good. I think whoever hoaxed those knew something about Bigfoot footprints. Um, but there were some things about them that gave me pause, some red flags, shall we say. Everything else checked out. I didn't mind the story. I, I liked the location. Everything about, about them I, I really liked. But there were some red flags. And also, they came at a time when finding Bigfoot was at its height. So uh, we're on the road seven, eight months a year, essentially. Um, and one of those breaks, the London tracks came in. I went down and cast it with cast them seventy two of them with Chris Minier. Then went on the road for five weeks. When I got back, I had time to clean them off, and then um, I started photographing. Then went on the then we went on the road for five weeks with Finding Bigfoot. Then then we're back again for a week and a half. I, I continued documenting them, and then go on the road for five weeks. But and, and around that time, they're saying, "Okay, new season. What are we going to do?" I said, "Well, let's do the London tracks. That'd be cool." So we did an episode on the London tracks before I knew that they were hoaxed. Um, and, but sometime after we did that episode and I was doing my documentation and write-ups on each of the individual casts and between my cast and Tom Powell's and other people's, there were something like 123 um, casts that were eventually uh, gathered. And I was doing my due diligence, documenting these things and writing them up. And I started noticing these patterns, these red flags had patterns. So I said, well, gosh, you know what? I think I need to do something about this. Um, so I called up um, the, the person I know that, uh, um, was part of the, the LB track hoax. And, um, I said, Hey, you don't happen to know anybody with a pair of fake stompers I can borrow. Do you knowing full well that he did? And he, and he said a peculiar thing. He goes, you know what? I'll make you a pair. I've always wanted to. I said, Oh, that's interesting. And it turns out this gentleman from, from what I understand, um, did not actually hoax it. They just, he just emailed it in. You know, I gotta say, I gotta give her credit. Renee was right on that one. The one, one of the few times she was correct, she was right. You know what fooled me the most was whoever did that was a good athlete because they slipped in the mud, did a 360 pirouette with fake stompers and pulled it off and kept going in stride. Yeah, and I found that very compelling as well. Yeah, but long and short of it, uh, this this gentleman um, lent me a pair of fake stompers. I ran around in the mud. I made casts of my own footprints. I ran around in the sand, did the same thing, ran around in all sorts of substrate, took photographs. And that's what I mentioned earlier with this Paul Freeman question we had just a little while ago. Yes, I have done experiments with fake tracks. Of course I have. Uh, it was a mistake not to do it beforehand, in my opinion. But I didn't want people accusing me of hoaxing things like the accused Paul. Um, so, uh, yeah, of course I've done experiments with fake things in the past. And, and I'll tell you, those experiments taught me more about real tracks than I ever would have dreamt, ever would have dreamt. 
I am so much better equipped now to discern a real track from a fake track, in my opinion, um, because of, of that and because of the fake tracks that I was lent and um, I got to do experiments with. So that's how, and of course, by then I'd already done the TV show and, you know, I am, I'm, I'm already on camera saying that I, they're real and I was just wrong and that's okay. I'm not one, I think if you know me and if you listen to the podcast or hear me talk, um, uh, at presentations and things, you know, that I'm not afraid to be wrong. A lot of Bigfooters, you know, are, are like, uh, egotistically married to their proclamations. Um, I am more than happy to be wrong if the data and the evidence that comes forward suggests that I am. That's fine. I believe in the scientific process. I am an advocate of science. And if I find that the evidence does not support my hypothesis, I will change my hypothesis. That is a victory if you have the right mindset in this game. If it's about you and you being right and you knowing everything and you not being wrong, you're a fool to begin with. But that 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 is the wrong approach to take for something like this. You, you should make a model and see if the evidence supports it. I gathered evidence that changed the, that I, I gathered evidence that did not support my hypothesis that these are real. So I revamped my hypothesis. Those are fake. And um, so now we're looking for more examples of those same prints, for example. Um, but anyway, yeah, London tracks are fake. Um, I'm 99% sure. And um, it was from experiments with another hoaxed situation and, and what came out of that that led me to that conclusion. And so our next guy is Paul McDonald. Um, hey, guys. Do you think if Sasquatch is proven as a real species – do you think we could live side by side, coexist with them? They're an amazing species, but could man handle it? I'd say, yeah, because we already are. He also says, can you imagine how much land they'd have to set aside? I don't think they'd have to set aside that much, really. They, they adapt. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, they, they do have big swaths of land that they like to roam around in, but it doesn't, it doesn't really matter if you're living there or not. Because, you know, well, a good friend of mine says, Cliff, you only own your property during the day. And they're absolutely correct about that. Um, Bigfoots don't care. I, I don't think they really care if we're around at all. I don't think they care about road building or logging or any of that stuff. Um, but of course, it would be better to have a thorough ecological study done so we know that. Yeah. If we take care of the other animals, they'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that really comes down to taking care of the land, I think. Because if you take care of the land, if, you, if we protect the public land that you and I already own, we are the owners. The, the American citizens own the public land. We own the national parks. We own the national forests. We own the BLM land. That is all ours. And if we protect that and keep it away from the, 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 you know, the greedy fingers of huge corporations that are happy to pollute it for the sake of their own extracting of resources and profit. Um, and man, trust me, there's, I'm not against logging. I'm not against mining. I am against gross pollution that's left over and that damages things after the fact. The, the evil echoes that, that, that go through our ecosystem. I'm against that stuff. Um, but as long as we protect what we already own, our land, Sasquatches are going to be fine. And so will the other animals. Yeah, that's what I agree. The next question comes from DJ Ross. I have to know, after all those episodes, do any of the Finding Bigfoot people have any lasting injuries they suffered during filming? I remember that one fall that Bobo took. How's your leg, Bobo? My leg's got some scars. That, that infection got super gnarly. It's all right. Um, my ankle, it's that chip where the boomerang hit it from Moneymaker, that little plastic boomerang that chipped my bone. 
that if I, I can't wear certain boots or shoes because it, if it rubs there. And then the only other thing is that I still get sciatica in my lower left back. I just just reflared up recently, but that was kind of off camera when I was jumping down from doing a recreation in the first New York episode. I like I, I don't know why did I landed straight legged. I didn't bend my knee. I just landed just about a five foot vertical drop and just came down straight on my left leg and it just boink, tweaked my back pretty good. But other than that, no, just just mo- emotional and mental scars. Yeah, yeah, just like the the, the standard PTSD of being on the road with everybody for so long, you know. Um, yeah, I don't think it's hard to tell if I have physical in- injuries or if I'm just 10 years older than I was when I started. Cause it's certainly one of those. Yeah. just, I, I think all my damage is emotionally. So, well, I landed on you in the balloon crash. I'm going to do some damage. I thought I landed on you. Cause I remember it was like a nice soft landing. Oh, that's right. That's I landed on the cameraman. <laughs> <laughs> no, he wasn't in it. He wasn't in the, oh, they he, jumped he out. And, yeah, he and Hamill jumped out to, and put us like let us loose to our fate. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Being dragged down that cliff face is a little scary, but um, looking back, it's scarier than it was at the time. It was just exciting at the time. It's like, oh, we're crash landing in a hot air balloon. Renee might have a little neck issues. I think residual neck issues. That's about it. That's right. That's right. Yeah, um, we were going pretty fast down a road, and um, she was in the back, and we hit a bump, and and Renee's head hit the ceiling. Um, so she may have some sort of neck thing, but I think she got a lot of that fixed. She's going through, th- uh, th- you know, physical therapy for a long time. Yeah, yeah. She, yeah. She got. We were in a fifteen passenger van. She was in the very back. We we're going seventy down a dirt road along a canal in Florida, and there was this like little jump built in before a bridge. We didn't see. And we hit because we cleared the bridge pretty much, and we cracked the frame of the van. And uh, she got. She was in the back, so she got just seesawed, like teeter tottered up into the roof, super hard. But that was off camera. Okay, the next question is from John H. Oh, did I do the last one? No, I did the last one, Bubba. You go ahead and do this one. Okay, John H. wants to know, I witnessed a grizzly bear take down a bull moose in the Yukon. Do you two know if Bigfoot and grizzlies coexist? Or would grizzlies prey on a Bigfoot or vice versa? Uh, that, that's John from Chicago. Oh, we know there's that famous case in uh, in Siberia where that famous uh, bear guide, grizzly bear hunter, found that uh battle scene with Bigfoot tracks and a dead giant trophy grizzly bear that he was going to take a, a client to go um, hunt and he found it uh, torn apart by a Bigfoot. There's that case and then there's other cases like in Raincoast Sasquatch and I think John Green reported where they throw rocks and drive grizzlies away from things with rock throwing. Yeah, so they obviously coexist. I mean, certainly their habitat overlaps quite a bit. Um, in Alaska and the coast of uh, British Columbia, there's certainly plenty of both kinds of animals. Um, but would, would grizzlies prey on a Bigfoot or vice versa? I su- I mean, maybe small ones, but I mean, I don't know. Like most large predators just avoid each other. Yeah, it seems like they would both kind of be occupying the same niche, you know, the same ecological niche. So a lot of times, unless the um, the the um, the resources are are so plentiful, most of that that kind of animal tends to avoid other animals in their own niche because there's too much competition. Um, the Sasquatches are smarter, I'm assuming, than bears. I think that's a safe bet. Uh, but bears have better claw situations for dealing with things. Maybe they're better at fishing, for example. Um, but still, I, I think that they probably have some sort of mutual avoidance. Um, but I, most animals don't, you know, get into tussles with each other because in, for any animal, you know, a, a sufficient laceration of a muscle or, or a broken bone spells their death. You know, we, we forget that as humans because we go to the doctor or we go to the hospital and get patched up. 
But for animals, they don't have that option. And any significant injury, and even a minor injury, could eventually cause their own death. So um, I don't think that they would really, either party would really have to worry about that sort of thing. Okay, next question is from Jess Keast. Um, what is your favorite thing to see when you are out squatching that isn't Bigfoot? For example, your favorite plant, animal, bird, tree, etc. So non non Bigfoot related things. So footprint tracks don't don't count. Um, sign of Bigfoot or maybe moving things around or weird rock piles that appear overnight. Those don't count. Um, has to be non Bigfoot related. I, I think is the way the question. I'd say just seen any any of the large you know large predators like wolf or bear. Mountain lion. Oh, yeah. I'm pretty stoked to see any of that kind of thing. I even like, you know, deer and elk for the most part, although they're certainly much more common, particularly the deer. But yeah, but any of the, those apex predators like wolves and, and bear and uh, uh, mountain lions, that stuff is pretty cool. I really enjoy seeing that sort of thing. Then again, I'm really into fish too, by the way. I was going to say spawning salmon. I love seeing that too. Yeah, I, I've I've spent more than an hour just sitting on the edge of the Trinity River, actually, one time, just watching the salmon swim by in the pool down below. I didn't have my rod, I didn't have a fishing license or anything, so I just watched them. I love that. Absolutely love that. Okay, here's the last question. Here we go, Bubs. This one's from Mark Carden. I enjoy listening, and my question is, it seems like almost all the pics, videos, and sightings you discuss take place during the day. Why do you believe that Sasquatches are nocturnal? Well, we encounter them way more at night, but um, of course there's more videos and pictures during the day because that's when you can see, and most people don't have night thermal equipment or night, you know, advanced night gear. So that explains a lot of it. I mean, you can only see about 1% of your environment with a little headlamp compared to the daylight where you can see most of your environment. So that kind of accounts for that in my book. Yeah, and you know what? Um, I... I would suggest, Mark, that you uh, go buy a copy of Dr. Grover Krantz's Bigfoot Sasquatch Evidence. You can get it online, um, uh, Amazon or any of these places. You want to buy from a small retailer, I ha we happen to have copies in the museum. But anyway, uh, in that book, Dr. Krantz addresses this question. And uh, I'll just kind of regurgitate what he um, wrote about because um, he said it very well. Okay. About half of Sasquatch sightings happen during the day as night. Um, it's not true, by the way. Um, I, I, I ran the numbers with John Green's numbers. About 60% happen during the day. But let's just say that um, it's 50-50, and you'll see why in a few moments. So about half of sightings happen during the day as night. Um, well, how many people are out at night in the kind of areas that Sasquatches be roaming around uh, compared to during the day? I don't know, maybe one-tenth? Let's be generous. One-tenth the number of people out at night? And how far can those people see? Again, let's be generous and say perhaps they can see one-tenth as much at night as during the day. So we have one-tenth the number of people out um, seeing one-tenth as far. If the sightings were 50-50, which we know they're not, but doesn't that right there indicate a hundred times more Sasquatch activity at night? So just by crunching the numbers um, of sighting reports, you get a strong tendency that Sasquatches seem to be more active at night. Now, of course, you know you you can see better during the day, and and as Bobo clearly said, that the, you know the video cameras and the radar cameras, all that stuff works way better during the day, um, and that's what that's why we get that stuff. But Again, if you look at the statistics, if you crunch the numbers, and, and John Green did the same thing in the back of John Green's book, uh, Sasquatch Ape Among Us, Apes Among Us. Um, he did something very similar. He 
he crunches all his data and gives us a nice rundown. And really not much has changed between 1976 or eight or whenever uh, Doc, uh, Mr. Green wrote his books. Um, and now look at what these people said back then. It's still true. And when you look at the statistics, we can know a lot about Sasquatches. And one of those things is that they are largely, but not ex ex exclusively, nocturnal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you look at all those, I mean, just like half of all settings are from cars and you look at the daylight ones. I mean, most of them, they're not crossing the road. Like a lot of them, they're up on an embankment or on a hillside, which you'd never see at night. Oh yeah. Like a hundred yards away or 200 yards away running across a field. You'd never know it was there. And we know they definitely come around camp way more at night. That's for sure. That's a fact. Well, it's like moth to a, fl a flame, right? I mean, they're going to come in and see what's going on because if they do have any significant uh, weaknesses, it's it's oddly enough, it's because of their intelligence that they are so curious. Their curiosity is probably one of the only weaknesses they have. So if you can exploit that somehow, perhaps you can get a picture or a sighting of your own, you know? Well, all right, Bobo, that was the last question. Um, uh, any uh, Anything you want to say to our Squatch Squatchketeers before we uh, sign off here? No, well, I got. We're gonna film some more of the documentary coming up next week, and um, we're gonna work on shooting parts of two different ones next week. And then, other than that, I'm gonna call MoneyMaker right now, so I get to do that. So I'm stoked about that. I'm gonna call MoneyMaker and find out about those new thermals the BFRO is gonna be putting out. See if I can get one of those in time for our shoot. Very cool. Very cool. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, um, if you're listening to this and you're you're in the Kentucky area, um, uh, CryptidCon is coming up. Um, Matt and, uh, Renee and I are scheduled to be there at this point, but we'll had to back out for unforeseen circumstances. Um, but yeah, so we're going to be out there in Lexington, Kentucky on November 20th, uh, for CryptidCon. A lot of other good folks are going to be there. I don't have the list in front of me or I'd tell you about it, but uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun the last couple of years. It's a good fun gig, a lot of, uh, interpersonal time and networking time and just hanging out and talking squash sort of stuff. Um, and other than that, North American Bigfoot Center, we're still doing our thing here. If you're interested in uh, participating on any level, maybe maybe become a member. You know, six bucks a month is what we ask, and you get uh, documentaries and updates on the museum. And uh, we're, and you know, as I mentioned earlier, we're starting a, a long duration recording project, so all those results will be on the membership section. Maybe that's for you. Six bucks a month isn't so much. If you buy a beer and tip appropriately, you've already spent more money. So consider that. Um, but if you have more questions for next month's Q&A with Cliff and Bobes here, go to our website, bigfootandbeyondpodcast.com, and then click the contact button. Send us your questions, um, and we enjoy doing this. I hope that you guys enjoyed this episode and every other Q&A that we do. Or heck, I'm going to go big. I hope you enjoy all of the episodes that we do. Um, but if you want to participate on some level, shoot us a question. Anything you want to know, anything at all, let us know, and we'll have some fun with it. Yep. Cool. All right, Cliff, that was fun. I'm looking forward to the next one. So until next week, folks, keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 